Well, as we read a little earlier with Peter, um, we are in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and today we're going to walk through it. Um, I feel like, as I've studied this, this is one of the most misinterpreted parts of the Bible. And uh, so we'll take, we'll take a humble stab at walking through it together and uh, hopefully making some sense of what has confused a lot of different people and led to a lot of different uh, debates and various forms of strife uh, if you read church history about it. Our, our theme for the Gospel of John, at least so far, has been that your story is better than you think. And on Christmas Sunday, we started with this. When you join God's family by believing in Jesus, you become part of his amazing eternal story. So the story that represents your life, your existence, your eternity is a lot better than you might have realized, because, not because of what you've done in the story, but because when you believe in Jesus, you become a part of what he's doing in time and in eternity, and, and it all becomes part of your family history. And so as people discover this, as people realize the good news that they can be invited into God's family and be rescued from their sins and be given a new future, uh, what that compels them to do is exactly what we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, that that they, someone has an encounter with Jesus and they excitedly go to their friends or their family and they say, look what happened to me, like I was healed or I think I met the Messiah. You've got to come and meet him. And so they would testify and then they'd introduce their friends and even more people would start to believe in Jesus. So, so far in John 1 through 5, we've been introduced to Jesus the Messiah through a variety of stories. Um, it's, not, it's, not pure, it's not all the stories. John tells us that at the end of the book. There's a lot of other there's a lot of other things that were happening, but John has selected these stories on purpose to help us recognize that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah, uh, so that we can believe and have power in his name. That's what John 20 uh, says. All, all of the stories, all of the claims of Jesus in the Gospel of John, they all invite a response. And today we're going to see a negative response at the end of the story. Uh, so John 6, what we just read, the crowds were being attracted by miracles, uh, when you think about the scale of this out in sort of the rural areas of Judea long ago, uh, the fact that there could be a crowd, which we just heard in our reading, numbered 5,000 men plus their families, you start to realize that there's a lot of people following Jesus. Uh, a huge percentage of the population is interested. Word is spreading like wildfire. I mean, the, the message about Jesus has certainly gone viral. Everybody's interested because they've heard of sick relatives being healed. They've heard of miraculous events. They've heard of the water turning to wine. I mean, all these things are adding up. They've heard of how Jesus cleared the temple of all the corruption. They've heard of his debates with the teachers of the law. And people are they're psyched. They're interested. And they've grouped up now 5,000 men plus their families uh, out in the hills. And that's when we pick up our story uh, that we just read, that Jesus looks at his disciples and says, all right, well, uh, how are we going to feed this crowd? I mean, here they've come to see us, and Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He kind of tested the disciples with that, and then Jesus does this incredible miracle of multiplication, right? And he takes the five loaves and the two fish and somehow is able to feed what easily would have been 15,000 people, maybe more, gathered on those grassy hills, as it says, um, so the crowds are being attracted by the miracles, but as we'll find out, they're actually missing the real miracle. 
I mean, they're seeing the earthly miracle. They're seeing the healings and the multiplication of food. What they're missing is that the actual miracle, the life-changing reality, is standing in front of them. And they're looking right past him and wondering what can he do rather than asking who is he. And uh, and so the Messiah, as we'll read in the text today, doesn't back down. He doesn't placate. He doesn't kind of, you know, moderate the message so that more people accept it. In fact, he accelerates the difficulty of the message to make sure that anybody who's really following him is actually believing, and they're not just in it for free food or for free miracles. And uh, those feed-me followers, they started leaving at the end of the text, uh, leaving Jesus with just a small core of disciples. And it's interesting, in the ministry of Jesus, you've got this ballooning of like interest in all these crowds. And by the end of John 6, we have here, it's shrunk down to just a handful that are really believing. And then it balloons out again. And then what happens at the cross? And almost everybody leaves until not, not even all the 12 were there at that time. And so you have these sort of cycles of popularity and fame and the message going out um, but then when people actually reckon with what Jesus was saying uh, or what Jesus came to represent, fewer and fewer are interested. All right, so here was kind of the central claim of chapter 6. After Jesus had given them physical bread, which made them all excited, I mean, we'd be excited too if you know, Jesus said, let's go out to lunch and just all was there for us. Yeah, we'd, we'd follow him to the next stop and say, well, um, okay, is there a dinner attached to this, this deal? Like, uh, let, let's keep traveling with him. Uh, but Jesus said to this crowd, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Now, we've been studying John, so some of you might recognize this logic uh, from chapter 4. What does this sound like? All right, the woman at the well where Jesus says, if you drink from the water, I'll give you you'll never be thirsty again. Uh, in fact, this, this water will be like a spring of eternal life. So Jesus has used the metaphor of being born again with Nicodemus. He used the metaphor of water with the woman at the well. And now with all these crowds who are all interested in bread because he just multiplied, he says, by the way, like the bread you're eating isn't the whole story. I am the bread of life. I've come down from heaven. Now, What we find in this text, I think, is an interesting interplay between people's expectations of earthly earthly blessing that they wanted from Jesus and Jesus' actual message and point, okay? So uh, here's here's kind of how we could frame it. Um, When we hear Jesus uh, saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood, which is at the end of this chapter, it's the, same, it's the same way that we partake of the living water or the way that we're born again or the way that we behold the light of the world or the way we come into the care of the good shepherd. All of these metaphors that Jesus used to describe himself were all, were all designed to invite us to do what? Believe. It's all about faith. It's not actually about the flesh, the blood, the water, being physically born again. It's not about shining a light in your face and going, okay, that's the light. It's not about actually tracking along with a shepherd and protecting your sheep. These are metaphors to help you understand that God the Father has sent Jesus the Son into the world to change you, to love you, to offer you new life, to bring you into his family, and that what God wants you to do is believe. 
So where things have gotten tripped up in this chapter is that people have missed that point and thought that the flesh and the blood were somehow to be taken literally, which is crazy because that's actually exactly what the crowd thought, and, and Jesus said that they were wrong. So let's walk through kind of a narrative here of like what was happening. And I realize this is a long text, and I think that might be why there's a lot of confusion around what Jesus really meant when he said this. So, so kind of breaking it down into a conversation, just so we can sort of picture what was happening here. Jesus, you know, here's this crowd. Think about what's just happened. They just crossed the lake. They're all gathering around. Uh, people are sort of looking at their watches and, you know, maybe looking at the sun or whatever and see the, you know, hey, what, what, yeah, Jesus, is, is there more food coming? Like we're kind of here and we're kind of hoping there's going to be another meal. Okay, so that's, that's the context. The people are there to eat. Jesus says to them, by the way, the number one thing God wants you to do is to believe in the one he sent. That's me. And the people are sort of like, sure, sure, we're, we'll do whatever you say. Uh, tell us. Like we, in fact, we want to do the works of God too. What you think about, what were they kind of cynically asking for? Sort of like, it's almost like they're taunting him. Like, give us the same power you have if you're really who you say you are. Jesus says, there's only one work God wants you to do right now. It's belief. Okay, well, that didn't satisfy them. So, so they take it to the next level. They say, well, Moses gave us physical food, right? So why don't you do that? Then, notice in verse 31, they actually say, if, like, if you'll do it, then we'll believe in you. And you kind of say, well, what, what did he just do at lunchtime? <laughs> like, he had just done it, but now they're saying, well, if you give us another miracle, now we'll believe. So you have to ask the heart attitude of this crowd. Are these, are these sort of humble seekers that are really sitting at the feet of Jesus, the rabbi, wanting to learn from him? Not so far, right? Uh, they're, they're coming with definitely their own agenda. And, they're, and so there's a couple things going on in their minds. One is they're hungry, and they've just spent the whole day looking for Jesus. So yes, give me food right now is part of what's on their mind. The other thing, which is hinted at in the text, is that they were thinking, they, they were ready to make Jesus the king. Like they were already checking off all the boxes going, well, yes, he's the Messiah because he gave us a free lunch. So yes, let's make him king. And that's when, you know, Jesus says, no, 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 this is not the time. This is not uh, the way this is going to go. So they, they offer this sort of taunt of like, well, Moses could do it. Why don't you prove who you really are and you do it too? So Jesus answers, uh, no, the eating that you need to do is of a different nature. Believe in me, I am the bread of God that was sent from heaven. I'm the bread of life. So again, they're not satisfied with that, right? I mean, they're missing the metaphor entirely, and they're still thinking about their empty stomachs. So Jesus is calling them to see this amazing miracle that he is there, like the Messiah is there, and something way better than earthly manna is standing in front of them that could change their whole eternity. And they're saying, no, no, I want food. So when he said, I am the bread of life that was sent from heaven, look to verse 42. Verse 41, actually, it says, Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother, but how can he say I came down from heaven? So now it's sort of time to throw out the objections, right? I mean, they're, they're a little bit perturbed at this point that Jesus isn't giving them what they want. Um, like they're kind of like we finally got the messiah here he's got all this power he can multiply our food obviously he could do even more than that for us so like let's turn it on let's do it 
And Jesus is, you know, he's telling us all this stuff about bread from heaven. Great, whatever he wants, but where's the food? Okay? Then when he says, I came down from heaven, they're like, wait a minute. We, we watched you grow up, Jesus. We know where you're from. And there's no way that, that you're from heaven. Let's, let's be honest about this. Okay, so Jesus says, well, I'm telling you the truth. The food you need to be worried about is right here, standing right in front of you, living bread. And I'm going to give up my flesh for the world so that you can have life forever. So he just, he's, if you think about what he just offered this sort of cynical, self-focused crowd, what did he just say to them? Literally, I'm, I'm here to give myself up for you. Like, you're worried about bread? I am, a, I am going to give myself, my flesh, for you, for your salvation. I'm a gift from the Father to you. So that goes right over their head. They totally miss that because they're focused on this life, this world. And what do they say? Oh, ugh, cannibalism. Is that what you're saying? And no thanks. We're hoping you would take us seriously, Jesus. That's what verse 52 if you kind of read a little bit between the lines to get the attitude, right? It's not quite all there directly in the text. But the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So, so here they've, they're still thinking physical, right? They're still thinking this earth. And they, they've totally missed the fact that Jesus is giving them a metaphor for how like, they need to fully accept him, fully believe in him, if they want to step into the eternal life that he came to offer. So at that point, you know, they're sort of saying like, yeah, this is, this is crazy what Jesus is saying. And you could almost think of Jesus going, okay, well, I can see we're not getting anywhere. I can see you're not interested in what I have to say. And so I think we're done. So he leaves them with this uh, to chew on. If you won't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll never see eternal life. Now, when Jesus said that, I mean, you tell me, was he speaking in, was he continuing the metaphor or was he talking about literally drinking his blood and eating his flesh? What do you think? So the metaphor is continuing, but it's interesting. He didn't back down from it. So what would have been tempting in like, if you think if Jesus was a politician, he would have seen that the crowd was starting to go, get away from him. And he would have went, wait, 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 everybody. Hey, I'm just, I'm just talking in metaphor. Like, let's talk about living water instead, if that doesn't gross you out as much. Uh, let, let's talk about light, or let, let's, let me just cut to the chase here. What's interesting is Jesus had already cut to the chase, right? He'd already said, just believe in me. That's what the Father wants. They, they weren't accepting the reality, so now he's speaking to them in this metaphor. They're not getting it either, and so it's almost like he turns it up a level and says, yeah, and it's, and it's sort of provocative language on purpose here. Yeah, you're never going to see eternal life unless you figure this out. So, what do they do in response? They leave. I always remember John six sixty six uh, because that's when all the people left Jesus. Uh, all those disciples that were the the feed me followers, the fair weather friends, the the ones that were willing to you know they'll stick around as long as they're being fed. But like the moment that they have to do some work on their own, or the moment that something doesn't quite go their way, man, we're out of here. Um, and so they say, "This is too much. We thought you would have made such a great king, but hey, forget it." Which is awfully fickle, right? I mean, this crowd turned from like total adulation. And at the first part of the chapter, they, were, they wanted to force Jesus to be the king. Now to like, we have no interest in this guy. He's crazy. So if I'm summarizing all this, here's, here's, how I, here's what I think is happening here. 
The text shows Jesus interacting with an increasingly demanding and hostile crowd of people who wanted food, not faith. And, and you could even look at this and say, it, it seems like they were intentionally being difficult. Like they were, they were there to get their way. And, and so they weren't there to actually hear the answer. Kind of reminds me of parenting. Some of you parents know how this works, where you, you, know, you, you feel like you're giving your child like this you know, deep, meaningful, philosophical answer of like why something is. And what you realize is they're actually already calculating their next objection to you to try to get their way a different direction. Or they're just thinking, okay, forget mom, now I'm going to go talk to dad or whatever. You know, they're, they're not really interested in the truth. They're interested in getting their way. And I think that's what was happening here as, as evidenced by the end of the story. That these weren't humble believers like looking for truth. These were people that when they didn't get their way, they were out of there. So Jesus beats them at their own game, if you want to look at it that way. And he takes the bread of life metaphor to the next level. So they couldn't accept the metaphor in the first you know, part of the conversation. So great, we're going to ratchet it up a level and I'll leave you with that. And, and those of you that have you know, eyes to see or ears to hear, maybe you can come back later and talk. Uh, I, for me, what's been interesting so far as we study John is I notice how much hardball Jesus plays. And, and it, you only kind of catch it if you, if you study it the way we're studying it and you actually go through the whole thing as a narrative. And you start realizing like, that the interchanges that Jesus had with people who had prideful hearts, angry hearts, self-righteous hearts, uh, he did not play nice with them. He was extremely frank and clear. And when they wanted to argue, uh, Jesus wasn't like soft and cushy about it. He, he, gave, I mean, he gave them the unanswerable questions right back. And we'll see that again and again as we keep going through John. So the result of this whole interchange, um, which is interesting because you think about where it started was at the first part of the text where Jesus feeds the 5,000 or the 20,000 or however many were there. Jesus feeds all these people. Uh, but the, at the end of the storyline, what you actually have are fewer followers, not more. Because this whole metaphor now has sifted out all the people that are just there for the miracles and who weren't interested in actual faith or learning. And, uh, and so now we come to the very end of the text, which actually, for a few different reasons, has become one of my go-to verses for so many purposes. All right, So let's look at this together in 6... 66, it says, at this point, many disciples turned away and deserted him. And then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked, well, are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. And so now we're back on point, right? The 12, led by Peter here in this instance, they get it. They see the bigger picture. They see what's actually going on. Jesus, why would we leave you? You're the one that's telling us about eternal life. No one else can tell us how that happens. And then they give this sort of statement of belief, verse 69. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter wasn't with the crowd saying, just show me one more miracle and then I'll believe you. He, there wasn't any of that. It was, no, we, we get it. Jesus, we get that there, there's nowhere else to go. Like if we leave in a big huff and say we're going to head off and find greener pastures, like where, where are you going to find those exactly? Um, which the reason this has become a go-to text for me in my own life is that, you know, at various stages of all of our lives, we contend with doubts and we wonder if we're on the right track. And, and so sometimes I'll get to that spot and I'll be thinking like, am I really... Uh, is, this, is this all real or am I, is this, is half of this just in my mind somewhere or whatever? 
Um, or maybe I should go explore other things. And that's when this, this statement from Peter comes up again and again and again, uh, at least in my own life it has, that um, there's actually nowhere else to go. And so you could set aside Jesus, and Peter could have been right with that crowd, and he could have said, I don't, this is too hard of teaching, I'm out of here. Where would he go next? Who, who else would he follow? Uh, Jesus is the one with the words of eternal life. And that's why we approach Jesus with faith. Uh, because we're able to look at Jesus and say, I don't, I don't understand everything, that, how this all fits together. Uh, but at the end of the day, I recognize that you have the words of life. And I can't deny that you're the one that God sent. So I'll keep, I'll keep trusting in you. I'll keep my wagon hitched to you. Now, as, as to the mess that this, this text has kind of created throughout church history, if you ever read how people actually would literally kill each other over their interpretation of these verses, uh, which now in hindsight looks crazy, right? But in the, in the moment, uh, that's, that's what was happening back in medieval Europe and uh, even maybe a little bit before that. Uh, so personally, when I, when I approach John 6, I don't think it has any reference in it to communion which we're going to actually partake of here in just a few minutes. Um, that, now, you could see the connection because the metaphor is similar. So here's maybe a way of looking at it. Later in the narrative, later in the, in the Gospel of John and the other Gospels too, Jesus brings up a similar metaphor at the Last Supper by encouraging us to think of bread and wine as examples of his body and blood that were given for us. And so, yes, there's certainly symbolism that, that is you know, very related. The fact that Jesus gave up himself as a sacrifice for our sins so that we wouldn't have to pay the, our own penalty for what, how, how we'd broken the law. Instead, he stepped in and paid that for us. Uh, but when we read John 6, we're not reading about the Lord's table and the church ordinance and the, 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 the pattern that Jesus left at the Last Supper. If, if we want to learn about that, we turn a little further down the storyline and we read the Last Supper when Jesus was with those disciples, offering them that as an example, as a way of continuing to remember uh, what his sacrifice meant and what and how it would impact their lives, um, but I look at this metaphor in John six as really a a way of of helping ferret out who is a real believer and who is just in this for the physical food and the miraculous displays. And I think that's what was going on. So, uh, a great question to ask for is to just say simply, you know, have you actually eaten the bread of life yourself? Not have you done communion at church or not have you walked through some ritual somewhere, but in your own heart and life, have you actually believed in Jesus? Have you taken a real step of faith in him to say, yes, I admit he's the Lord and I'm not and I'll walk with him, I'll follow him? Um, or are you still holding out? Would you say, I see the bread of life, I see that that's a belief, but I haven't partaken of it myself. I haven't actually gone that direction personally. So look to John 6, verse 47, and let's just hear what Jesus would say, but this time as we look at it, not to see it through the eyes of that skeptical crowd, not to see it in the context of some big debate, but instead just to say, what is Jesus actually asking me to do? And here it is, verse 47, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I offer so that the world may live, 
is my flesh. Spurgeon was a preacher the last couple centuries ago, and uh, I liked I liked something from one of his sermons on it. I just wanted to share this with you. He said, every man feeds on something or other. You see, one man is getting his Sunday newspaper, how he will feed on that. Another goes to frivolous amusements, and he feeds on them. Another man feeds upon his business and upon the thought of his many cares. But all of that is poor food. It is only ashes and husks. If you did but put, or if you did but possess true spiritual life, you would know the deep necessity there is of feeding upon Christ. We're not talking about physical food. We're talking about your soul, the focus of your soul, the focus of your faith. Being not in the things of this world, whether it's your next meal or your next dollar or your next goal in life, um, not the next amusement. It's, it's, not, it's not in earthly things at all. It's, it's that you actually set your soul to say, the thing I need the most, the thing I'm craving, the thing I'm hungry for in my heart is more of Jesus. And, and when we approach Jesus with that kind of faith, that's when we get to know him. Uh, that's when life uh, starts to make sense. So why don't we take a minute to pray, and we're going to prepare our hearts to receive communion here this morning and kind of come to the Lord's table. Um, recognizing that when Jesus did sit down at that Last Supper with his disciples, he did give us this metaphor that's really similar to John 6, where he, he says, you know, as often as you break bread, as often as you drink this cup, I want you to do it in a way that remembers me. I want you to think about my sacrifice that I'm about to make for you. You know, and, and in the moment, the disciples didn't really know what he was talking about, so they're kind of going along with it, but they, they have no idea that just a few hours later, Jesus would be there upon the cross actually, actually living out the promise that he had made to them uh, that they hadn't quite understood. So if those who are going to help me serve communion, pass it out, would come forward at this time, uh, we'll pray and I would encourage you to do a couple different things as the elements are getting passed around. Uh, you can just hold on to those and we'll all eat and drink together when everyone has this. Uh, but I would just encourage you during this time that things are being passed around to pray. And first question in your heart, uh, before you take a representation of Jesus' blood and body, just ask yourself, when, in, the, in the matter of faith, have you actually ever received the bread of life? Have you believed in Jesus? Or are you still hanging on to belief in yourself. Um, and then if you say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely, I, I'm like one of those 12. I, I wouldn't leave Jesus. I don't have anywhere else to go. And of course, I know that he's the, the one that God has sent. Uh, then to start to ask yourself in your heart, um, yeah, how is my relationship with Jesus? And just to use the time that we have in, in quiet here as an opportunity to pray and uh, an opportunity to refresh your relationship with him. All right, and when we do pass this out, we have the, uh, the cups are stacked together, so make sure as you go to grab a cup, you kind of grab the bottom one, and your, your bread and your juice there will pass all that out at the same time. All right, let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, we're, we're so thankful for you coming down from heaven and giving us eternal life and the hope of um, a future with you that lasts beyond this earth, uh, and Lord, in the meantime, that you are willing and able to transform our lives. All of that is a miracle, and all of that is amazing. Um, Lord, here to, this morning, we want to take some time uh, just in an unhurried, prayerful atmosphere here to 
consider what your death means for us. That you really did come down from heaven and offer yourself. You didn't have to do that. Uh, You did it because you loved us. And Lord, in this moment, we want to say thank you for that incredible love. And uh, Lord, as we think about our relationship with you now in the next few moments, I pray that if there's some here among the family that have um, a struggle in their heart or life, or if they recognize that they're far away from you, um, or maybe they've never met you, that that in this time, Lord, you would uh, just seize their heart and help them to step out of the crowd of uh, Feed Me followers, of Fairweather friends, and move toward the center, move closer to you. And uh, Lord, we'll look forward to seeing how you'll work in their lives. So we commit this time in Jesus' name.